Good morning, good evening, and good day. You're listening to Drama Buds, an anima podcast. So hello everyone, welcome to today's episode of Drama Buds. I'm kind of combining two types of episodes. It's a second chances episode for Because This Is My First Life because I dropped that, I don't know, last year, sometime last year. And a J-drama journey episode for The Full-Time Wife Escapist because, yeah, it's one of the few J-dramas I've watched so far. And I thought of just combining these two instead of doing a individual episode for both of them because they kind of have similar tropes. They're both marriage of convenience, cohabitation dramas. So just a quick synopsis on both of these. Because This Is My First Life is about an assistant writer for dramas who can't find a place to live or a writing job and she doesn't want to move back to the countryside with her parents. So she agrees to get into a fake marriage with a software designer who needs a tenant to help him pay for the mortgage of his apartment. And The Full-Time Wife Escapist, also known as We Married as a Job. It's about a temp worker who can't find a job and doesn't want to move with her parents to the countryside. So she agrees to get into a fake marriage with a software engineer who hired her as a housekeeper. So based on the synopses of both of these, yeah, you, you can tell there are some similarities. I heard there were like plagiarism accusations, but I don't think so. I think they were released too close to each other. I, I don't think so. It's just they're common tropes. It's I, I, I don't think it's plagiarism. Anyway, yeah, I just want to dissect the similarities, the marriage of convenience trope in itself, and how both of these depict modern day marriages. Also, disclaimer, this is not a glowing review for either of them. I give them both a 7 out of 10. And that means like generally pretty watchable for both of these. Okay, let's start out with just my thoughts on both of the shows. Let's talk about uh, Full-Time Wife Escapist first. This has 11 episodes, but I didn't watch the movie or special episode. On Netflix, they list it as a second season, but it's just one episode. It's a two-hour movie or something. I didn't watch that anymore. I just watched the 11-episode series from 2017. At first, it was cute. I wouldn't say that the leads had amazing chemistry, which is very funny because I found out in the middle of watching that they got married around four or five years after the drama. Like, huh? It started there? Uh, Okay, who knows? I didn't see it. But hey, not everyone needs to have real-to-real chemistry here, okay? Anyway, I will talk about why I didn't love their chemistry in the drama a little bit later. At first, I thought, okay, you know, I know these tropes. I know how this is gonna go. They're just gonna fall in love slowly and it's gonna be awkward because they're both awkward characters. And, you know, are my feelings real? Are they ever going to reciprocate what I feel about them? And then a lot of, yeah, yeah, you, you know what to expect when you see these kinds of tropes. But there were some twists that I loved. In episode, I think, three or four, 
one of Hiramasa, the male lead's co-workers, he's known for being like super charming and dating around. Like he's a, a Casanova character, you know, which is the complete opposite from our male lead who's very awkward and nerdy. And that co-worker found out that Mikuri, the female lead, was essentially just Hiramasa's live-in housekeeper. That's the arrangement. So he hired her as well because, you know, why would there be a problem? She's just a housekeeper. She's not really your wife, right? I need someone to cook and clean for me too. But of course, Hiramasa started feeling insecure and he used their contract as a way to kind of give her a way out of their arrangement, you know, just in case you fall in love with the co-worker. Because this weird arrangement where they're telling everyone that they're married could be holding her back from the true love that she deserved. Meanwhile, on her side, she just wanted to get close to him because he was making this whole situation awkward. They weren't talking while eating. They could barely look at each other. And he kept establishing rules like, yeah, no talking about her other jobs. And she has to make sure that the quality of her work here at home wouldn't suffer. And her resolution was, I think, to schedule uh, every Tuesday hugs or something. And it's she framed it as like an employee, <laughs> employee well-being thing because she couldn't do her job properly if she was uncomfortable around him. I, I swear I'm misremembering this because I watched this months ago and I wasn't taking notes or anything. So yeah, essentially... She was teaching him to be her boyfriend. And they get super convoluted with trying to pretend that everything is within their contract. And at some point, the awkwardness stopped being enduring. And it just I just started zoning out or skipping scenes a little bit. But there is this side story with Mikuri's aunt, who's been single forever. She's very dignified about it. And she thinks she's like, yeah, she's past that age, whatever. But of course, she has this um, bickering dynamic with that Casanova co-worker of Hiramasa's. And of course, there's a little something-something there. But towards the end, I'm glad they actually pushed through with that little plot line instead of forcing some sort of love triangle with the leads and that co-worker. And generally, it's a pretty sweet show, but I was more into it at the beginning and kind of lost interest when it was just about him not feeling confident enough that he could be loved. Something like that. Yeah. In terms of trajectory of my feelings about the show, I felt the opposite way about Because This Is My First Life. Because I remember, I watched the first four episodes before when I first dropped it. So this time, I kind of just breezed through those. And watching the whole thing now, the main couple story can easily be split into parts, I guess. Episodes 1 to 6, they're meeting for the first time and they get fake married. Episodes 7 to 9, Jiho starts working at a part-time job and then there's this guy who is kind of antagonizing Sehi because he's aware that they have a contract relationship and it's not real. And of course, you know, any display of concern from Sehi, from the male lead, makes Jiho yeah, slowly fall in love with him. And then in episodes 10 to 11, she's kind of taking it out on him a little bit that he like isn't connecting with her in that way. And then by the end of episode 11, they both have feelings for each other. But then Sehi's past comes up and Jiho realizes that their marriage of convenience isn't convenient anymore when love is involved. So that's until like episode 15 and then... 
they break up, she vanishes and comes back to start a relationship out of love, not out of this, you know, contract marriage or convenience or their financial need for each other. And the, you know, the second half or the the last stretch of the show, I've heard a lot of mixed reviews, but to me, plot-wise, even if Sehi's past with Jongmin this like ex-girlfriend from years ago, even with that and with Jiho pretending not to know anything and, you know, making decisions without hearing Sehi's side or without even talking to him about what she knows, even if the last five episodes were a bit convoluted, I felt like the show was getting better at that point because things were actually happening. Or was it because, to be honest, I was watching the show in 1.5 speed at that point. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I, I realized the style, the pacing was not helping me. And yeah, the, the chemistry of the leads was also not convincing, but it's kind of for a similar reason as full-time wife escapist. Uh, in terms of the side couple, so they're yeah, three guys, three girls. Very similar to Love Struck in the City, I'm telling you. <laughs> so the long-term couple of Horang and Wonsok, it was just frustrating. Because I've seen this story in Fight for My Way. I've seen this story in Love Struck in the City. I mentioned this when I talked about dropping this drama. I've seen it done after this show. And I've just, it's never been gripping to me. I've never felt like, yeah, you've stayed long enough and you love each other. Even though your long-term plans are incompatible. But hey... If you love each other, everything's gonna work out. It just doesn't resonate with me. I'm just not interested in it. But I really loved Suji and Sioma. She reminds me of An Yongi from Missing, who's, you know, she's dealing with misogyny in the office and she's just bearing with it. And I love how Sioma sees how strong-willed she is as a person and encourages her to stand up for herself because that's that's how she is as a person. And he doesn't try to fix her problems using his position as a CEO that works with her firm because he knows that it would make things worse for her. So all he can do is just support her and encourage her to be more true to her strong-willed self. And he doesn't shame her for you know sleeping around or he doesn't force her into any like traditional expectations for women. I love their relationship, really. I loved all their scenes. Now, I mentioned that I didn't feel much chemistry between both of the main couples. And usually, I would blame that on acting. But then I realized, no, they're acting their characters out exactly as they should be. I don't think there's anything wrong with their characters themselves. I think, I think, it's because with the setup of their characters, with the tropes, it has to be passionless. It has to start with no attraction necessarily or no romantic interest. And, you know, it's nice that their feelings grow because, you know, they live together, they find similar interests, they find similar values, but it's just it's just a little too vanilla for me. <laughs> I have to admit, I like a little spice in my romance. And what's funny is that they're so similar. Like, I watched these a month or two apart from each other, and I thought, huh, I feel like I've seen this exact situation before. 
And I have a theory. I have a theory as to why this is, why this happened. I think it's to make it maybe a little less creepy. <laughs> because, okay, let me rephrase their situation. Let me stress different things about the synopsis of these shows. A financially unstable financially needy, financially insecure woman with no job and no home signs a contract. Legally binding or not? I don't know, but a contract is a contract. And she signs it to live with an older man who is much more financially capable, who owns the house and all of the assets in it, and they have to pretend that they're in a relationship in front of everyone that knows them. So if something happens there... Where is she gonna run? She has nowhere to run to. I'm just saying, if we rephrase some of the stuff that's happening here, you know, if we apply a different lens to it and add different kinds of music, mm, this could easily turn into a thriller, okay? And so my theory is that the male lead is robotic and romantically or sexually inexperienced or uninterested because this could easily turn into a thriller, okay? Not a romance. And with such a robotic character... So awkward, so incapable of it. They would never take advantage of her, never hurt her. No, he's not even not even capable of thinking of that. So that's my theory. <laughs> because I, I think that's just really my main gripe with their chemistry. It's like, I just did a fall for them falling for each other. I need a little spark here. I need a little spark. And, you know, we're watching a drama. Okay, if we're already working under the assumption that our leads are decent people who wouldn't do anything disgusting to someone in such a vulnerable position, which, by the way, because this is my first life, address that. Like, someone taking advantage of her because she's essentially homeless. That's kudos to them. If we're already working under that assumption that they wouldn't do that, can't we add a little spice? Uh, that's just me. That's just my preferences for how I like my romance. But it is what it is and the characters themselves are fine. It's just me. It's a me problem. It's me. My disinterest in the male leads and yeah, generally not enjoying these as much as I wanted to. I thought, man, do I not like contract relationships as a trope? But that's not true. I do enjoy contract relationships. Because it's kind of like the, the grown-up version of fake dating, right? You have the shenanigans of pretending that you're a couple in front of everyone who knows you. And then, you know, the lines between real and fake feelings, they're blurring. And of course, there's a lot of forced proximity because you're living together. It's cohabitation. And the tension of not knowing if they'll ever reciprocate your feelings. Because for the female lead, it's like, oh, but he's so uninterested generally. Am I just clowning myself by falling for him? And for him, it's like, oh, why'd she fall for me? Because I'm like this and like that. Uh, yeah, all these tropes and the things that come with them, I do like these. It's fine. But I guess the bigger draw of this, more than the tropes, is that they're a little bit thought-provoking, okay? Because they've come to the conclusion that marriage as an institution is just another contract relationship, right? Because who has the time to find someone that you'll marry for love when you're struggling to find a job, you're struggling to find a place to live, you're struggling to pay your mortgage. You're struggling to maintain the house that you're working so hard to pay for. You're struggling to take care of yourself. Like, who has the time to marry someone for love? 
But then when they find someone who fulfills their needs, they mutually get something out of this relationship, they still can't push through with it and just live together and solve both their problems because of this social taboo that men and women can't live together unless they're married. And so the only way for them to bypass that taboo is to get married. And so what at this point? They can't even think of love or romance when they don't have their basic needs met. Like, because this is my first time, I've actually talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Honestly, despite the quirky writing that doesn't always land with me, it it is nice when they bring stuff like that up. To these couples, marriage is just a mutually beneficial agreement. But introducing feelings and introducing love to that agreement makes it difficult to kind of quantify if they're getting as much as they're giving, right? And it's difficult to draw clear lines on, you know, are you violating our contract or not when it comes to love compared to deciding that, hey, you're not paying enough for the work I do or hey, you're not doing your share of the work. It's easy to set terms to their relationship in that way. But when it's a relationship that involves love, it's harder to determine that. For the full-time wife escapist, it's uh, an employer-employee relationship. She's being paid to be his housekeeper. And so their arrangement is based on what's the monetary value of all the reproductive work that she does in the household. Reproductive work, domestic labor, right? It's often invisible in a regular marriage. But they decide, hey, let's put monetary value to you cooking, cleaning, groceries, bills. Because that's hard work. That's real labor. Let's put monetary value to that. I cannot remember if they tackle that more deeply as a theme or, or is it just part of their, the journey of their feelings. I really can't remember. But for because this is my first life, definitely a lot more <laughs> layered than how full-time wife escapists kind of approach their different view on marriage. Because First Life really tackles the patriarchy in Korea in all of their relationships, all three of the couples featured here. But yeah, talking about the main couple, their contract as landlord and tenant is less about equal contribution. Like, obviously, she's jobless when they start the contract, so she can't even give as much as she originally promised to pay as rent. But they decide on an equitable agreement where, yeah, she pays a little less, but, you know, she still maintains the same chores and they have to do all the duties they have to do to pretend to be married and then just live as landlord and tenant. And that in itself is radical, like in the society that they're living in, compared to the households that they grew up in where the man earns all the money and has all the say in what happens in this house, in their relationship. Because in their house, in their relationship, that's their safe space away from the oppressive system and all the customs that they're not including in the marriage that they're defining for themselves. Now, I know a lot of people did not like the last plotline in the show, especially the ending. Because, you know, for two people in a contract relationship who are very, very, very particular about communicating, suddenly, they withheld so much info from each other. Like, for Sehi, the whole situation with Jongmin, his ex, who he got pregnant and he was about to marry her out of love, but, you know, he was forced to leave her because his father told him to do so and ruined their relationship. You know, that situation was the big baggage of his life. It was his, what, room 19. It was something that he couldn't explain to someone else. So uh, for me, it made sense that, yeah, he would keep that a secret. That's that's his private life. But for Jiho, it was a bit more frustrating because it felt like she had all the cards, right? She was speaking to Jongmin, asking about her past while piecing together that she was talking about Sehi. 
And she was the one who wasn't telling Sehi about what she knew about him and Jongmin. And she was the one who decided to end their contract, to vanish, and then to show up again to start the relationship out of love and not mutual need. Because now, he didn't need to pay for the apartment. He already sold it. And she finally could make her drama. So she was earning money for herself. She didn't need him as much. When I was watching it, I was kind of okay with what was happening <laughs> because one, uh, I have to admit, I'm way more invested in Jiho than Sehi. Like to me, as long as I get why Jiho does something, okay, that's fine. Sehi is like a supporting character to me. <laughs> yeah. And the entire time, I was really disappointed that they weren't going back to her wanting to be a drama writer because she kind of dropped that when they got married and it just wasn't feasible for her anymore. But this whole time, they described how much she struggled to get into SNU, to study there, to study literature, to stay as an assistant writer for years and years. Like That was her whole thing. And then suddenly, that's out of her life? I don't know. If they didn't go back to it, I would be very disappointed. So yeah, I was just glad that the last storyline of the show focused on that a bit. And two, I was kind of okay with it because it felt like this was still them pushing back against like the, the patriarchal system that allowed men to dictate what happens in the household and what happens in their relationship. Because they equally had the opportunity to end the agreement, to end the contract, and she took that opportunity. But, you know, I get also the side of the people who were frustrated with it because the premise of the relationship, the charm of their relationship, was that they saw each other as equals. Like, even if he earned more, even if this was his house, he always respected her as an equal. And she was just, yeah, she had all the cards. She was making one-sided decisions without communicating with him. So it felt like she wasn't treating him as an equal. So it felt like, okay, typical K-drama conflict, typical K-drama breakup. Instead of, you know, you're such a unique couple, you have such a unique dynamic. You could have dealt with this in your own way instead of, yeah, just breaking up and then getting back together out of love. I get the frustration. Why it didn't feel true to the essence of their relationship and why people loved their their couple so much. Unfortunately, I did not love their couple so much. So I was okay with it. But I, I get I get the other opinions. So that's it for me today. Uh, honestly, I'm not happy with my analysis on Because This Is My First Life. I feel like it's saying a lot more than that. But yeah, I honestly was not too invested in the show, so I couldn't super dig deep into what it was saying. But trust me, if I like a show, I can talk about it for two hours, as exemplified by my liberation notes and I don't know who. Oh, I could, I could. But yeah, wasn't there. I'm approaching this as someone who only really cared about Jiho and didn't super care about Sehi as a character and their relationship together. So, gotta admit my biases. As long as I understood her, I understood what was happening. I can't say everything about the plotting, the pacing, the characterization of these dramas were great <laughs> or that I enjoyed them a lot. As I said, they're both uh, 7 out of 10 for me. But if you're looking for rom-com tropes with a refreshing progressive twist 
I'd recommend these. And if you're looking for, you know, healthier relationships that don't necessarily have a lot of spice and a lot of attraction, because yeah, that's that's what I'm looking for in my romance right now. I would uh, I would recommend these. So yeah, that's it for me today. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you soon. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to leave a comment, like, subscribe, follow, and tell me what you thought about today's episode. See you soon!